You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode, a special episode of White People Won't Save You. This is a podcast where we deconstruct these white savior films and recontextualize them through a black and POC lens. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Clark. And I'm the other one, Cameron Mason. Uh, and we're excited today because we have two very excellent guests uh, that are here to talk with us about Colors of the Flower Moon, uh, Reservation Dogs, and more to the point, kind of put into context um, some of the things that are happening now in terms of native representation in film and television. Uh, first, we are joined by Joel Robinson, who is a member of the Osage Nation and recently wrote a very excellent piece for Slate about his thoughts on Killers of the Flower Moon. And we're also joined by Dr. Joanna Hearn, who is an associate professor at Oklahoma University and author of the books Native Recognition and the Western, as well as Smoke Signals, Native Cinema Rising. Uh, thanks, both of you, for joining us today. Thanks so yeah, much. <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, and I think there's there's a lot to talk about. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe we can start in like a macro to micro sense in terms of like looking at how we are, how, how we're used to perceiving native representation in film. Cause I, I think for me, one of the things that really I was thinking about before this conversation was kind of like, what is everyone's earliest memories of seeing native people in film and television? Um, mm. Because I think, you know, throughout, depending on you know how old you are and like kind of what you were you were inundated with whether it was westerns whether it's pocahontas uh right. whether it's you know movies that we've reviewed like indian in the cupboard or uh dances with wolves you know like there's all kinds of just like very weird things that are one probably not at all representative of native people that are kind of in the collective consciousness but also you know, like when you're seeing it, I think it, it can really be some of that subconscious stuff that kind of seeps in, you know, that you don't really recognize as a kid. And then when you get older, you're kind of like, wait, what? Like, I think a lot of people go back and they watch Peter Pan and they say, wait, wait what is this whole section here that I don't remember? <laughs> um, so I think, Joel, I want to start with you and just kind of get your thoughts on what are some of the things that you remember seeing early on as a kid in terms of of native representation yeah um the first one that i can remember at least was ending in the cupboard uh which i remember very little about it was probably like i don't know eight nine years old when Mm -hmm. i saw it haven't seen it since um i like briefly read the synopsis before we jumped on insane movie it's crazy um (laughs) (laughs) and then i uh i saw that frank oz directed it so like Sure. Um, Yoda himself can't be. <laughs> he's, he's not safe. But yeah, um, I think with that, it was it was odd seeing as a young person having that like be the first representation of yourself that you see in the media. Because um, it's like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be. And like, as I've gotten older, it's I, I realized pretty early on um, through conversations with my dad and such. It's like, that's, no, that's not, no. Um, And then I don't really recall many um, indigenous depictions after that that I grew up with, probably in part due to my family being like, hey, 
that's not who we are. That's a really poor representation. And so like maybe trying to keep me away from that in a sense. Um, like I saw Pocahontas for the first time last year. Wow. Um, it's insane. That's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I see why my family kept me away from that one. That was that was nuts. Um, I also watched uh, Terrence Malick's uh, The New World mm-hmm. a few months ago. Um, yeah. So as I've as I get older, I'm 25. As I get older, um, I have been both. Uh, I guess opening myself up to and experiencing both these modern depictions, say, you know, reservation dogs, um, et cetera, but also going back to stuff like Pocahontas, like, you know, all these movies that came before just as kind of have a better understanding of the historical context in the entertainment space. Um, and Joanna, as as a as a film professor, as somebody who specializes in, in native film, do you remember kind of the fir- your first viewing of of native people and representation in media? Well, I'm older. I have to think back, and also because I've studied so much, it's hard to say whether I just put a memory in there, you know. Mm. Um, but I remember Iron Eyes Cody as the crying Indian mm. in that 1970 um PSA commercial uh, yeah. yeah the anti-pollution commercial where you know he's he's you know it's an, an Italian actor <laughs> Oscar Cordy right <laughs> who was red facing in his private life and then also on screen and played a lot of Hollywood Indian roles his whole career and in that in that PSA um which was like it's just a really early part of the environmental movement you know he's turning away from his, I think you see him paddling up a river in full mm-hmm. buckskin fringe and then you know seeing litter on the highway and he sort of paddles into the modern world right from the past and that's you know that's uh, it says a lot about the whole history of images of Indians up to that point and then you know a, a tear falls down mm-hmm his cheek as he sees the litter flying out of a passing car. And so it's this epitome of, of the screen representation of like Indian victimhood. Right. Um, uh, you know, and also it's construction yeah. out of, you know, non-indigenous <laughs> materials and actors and, and all those narratives. I think I also remember some of the, um, uh, some other, um, uh, like the 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 song elbow room sort of settler colonial songs from schoolhouse rock mm, um mm. you know are supposed to teach you about american history um but did so with a really tin ear really toned up way um you know um you know staging various kinds of encounters mm. um, so i remember those kinds of representations from tv yeah cameron what about you Oh, maybe the earliest it is probably Pocahontas for me. I didn't even I didn't even think about it. Um, yeah, or maybe maybe I would say like the Disney cartoons, the earlier Disney cartoons from the fifties that would depict like I think there's the little Hiawatha 
cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I was I was gonna mention those ones with like yeah. the caricature caricatures that are like whooping and dancing definitely. around and yeah. Definitely. And I think, you know, well, I'm one of those, you know, millennials, I guess, that had uh I guess the gift of like watching like having those Disney cartoons and those like early Looney Tunes that like, you know, played on Cartoon Network or whatnot and that was kind of back in a day where those caricatures were just starting to be viewed as like caustic as, as a problem. Um, but you would still see them. They would still air mm-hmm. and, and maybe in your household, they would, you know, somebody would tell you that that's like a problematic image or something like that. And um, yeah, I actually, now that I think about it, those are probably the, the first images I saw in media at least. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, there's there's that, and then there's just like weird things that I remember seeing as a kid that I just like implicitly knew weren't correct, uh, but nobody like specifically told me. Like obviously, right. numerous sports teams with <laughs> native imagery <laughs> as their mascots. I was just kind of like a people as a. I mean, that football team yeah. was thirty minutes away from us yeah. for a very long time. We said nothing. It was very. Yeah, I was. I was in Goodwill the other day, um, and I saw a thermos from a high school in Oklahoma, and the mascot to this day is the Savages, and Oof. it's a native person in a headdress yeah. as the logo. I also well, we just got rid of the NFL team. What's, yeah, what's going well, on? they got rid of the NFL team. They got rid of the you know the Cleveland baseball team. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so people are are starting to make those changes. But I also remember like I grew up in maryland but my family's from chicago and we would drive back during the holidays as a kid and we would stop at these like antique malls and like tchotchke malls and i i know i made this connection just simply because of proximity because at everyone without fail there would be like the big cigar indian or like these like very strange like weird totem poles of like very characterized faces and then not too far away like some kind of like sambo imagery and I was always like, these two are bad. <laughs> like, I don't know yeah. what is happening here, Connecting but I the don't dots. like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is interesting because I think for a lot of people, you know, those earliest memories and those earliest images settle in in a way, you know, that, like they've just become a, a part of your childhood and nostalgia. But also, you know, even just thinking recently, like as a, as a preschool teacher, Thanksgiving came around and I was looking at the kids like, I don't want to read you any of these books. I don't want to, I don't want to install (laughs) any of this in your brain in the sense of like, this is what it is. Because even, you know, those like every cartoon that had like a Thanksgiving episode, like they would do the Thanksgiving play and somebody would dress up like a native person. And it would just kind of be like what you did um, instead of like ever really interrogating any of that. Uh, And I, and I find it interesting just because it, it happens so young a lot of the time that, you know, because you don't see native representation in really any other way, you kind of get this one, like they existed in the past. Because even in school, right, you would learn about settlers coming in and like the story of Thanksgiving and um, some things would kind of happen along the way. And that was kind of it, you know, and they, they would cut it all off and you wouldn't hear anything else. Um, so, you know, I, f- I find it really interesting that, you know, even to this day, like, Pocahontas still a big Disney film that kids watch and like we still kind of you know incorporate some of these things that like Cameron was saying we know are not correct like it's not 
you know, even recently, the the multiple Peter Pan remakes uh, with Tiger Lily, like they've tried to do seven different ways to not make it racist, and it's always still racist. And it's like it's always bad. Maybe just don't do that. <laughs> but Cameron, I know you had you had a, a follow up question. Well, I guess it's sort of a follow-up question. Um, I, I kind of wanted to know, um, so we, we went over what the earliest uh, depictions we got encountered were, but I, I wanted to see if we could even find like some of the better depictions or the best depictions uh, found in uh, TV and film. I, I, I like to think that I, I don't want to keep going back to reservation dogs but it is one of the few things you know we have right now and i i think that like just to i'll, I'll say that it's like attempt to be realistic about the native experience in like current times in 2020s it's it's there's something a little bit more than novel to it you know what i mean um and i wanted to know if uh you guys had seen any in film and TV over the years that you felt like it was actually like respectable or something that's actually trying to communicate, you know, the native story to other people, non-indigenous people. Um, yeah, I've, I've watched reservation dogs. Most of it. Um, I've gotten in this really weird habit of like not finishing TV shows. It happens. Um, yeah, so I'm still on the last episode of Succession. I'm on the last episode of this. I'm on the last episode of like four other things. Just make it just, last. It's, yep. it's, it's weird. Um, but yeah, I really liked uh, Reservation Dogs. Um, I think that from a non-Indigenous person, um, Prey was done really well. Granted, I'm mm. not Comanche, mm -hmm. um, but it it seemed very respectful um and i didn't have any you know i didn't walk away being like okay well you know this was a problem this is a problem this is a problem i thought it was um done really well you were uh, actually but, able to enjoy the movie yeah, for what absolutely. it was yeah um that and then like indigenous film recently um stuff like blood quantum that came out back in 2019 uh from jeff barnaby who taken way too soon um, I really enjoyed that one. And then um, I actually watched uh, Smoke Signals like two weeks ago for the first time. Loved that. That was oh, wow. awesome. That's great. I'm glad you like Smoke Signals because I that film stayed with me for a long time. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those. It's like you have to. It's almost you have to watch it if you're indigenous, right? And I just like never got around required. to it. Right, is that like required <laughs> viewing? Um, and then, yeah, my buddy Freddie was like, okay, we need to, you need to watch this. Let's watch it together. So we sat down and we watched it. I think it's historic, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's from my very limited, admittedly very limited knowledge of indigenous representation in film. Um, it seems like a one of the earliest examples that I've seen, at least, of a film that did it right. Yeah, yeah. I I think you know that film, and then on the other side of the millennium, all the films that started coming out from the Isuma Igbulik Company in the Arctic, in Nunavut, and the the big one that was their first big breakthrough that won like all these Canadian Genie Awards was Atanarjuat, which is the Fast Runner. And, you know, it's this three hour epic 
all in the Inuktitut language. And it's all filmed. It was, it was all filmed in the community. It was all okay. filmed with community actors. And, you know, that, that just became this global phenomenon. It was, it's an amazing film. And then they have gone on to make many other films. Um, but in the other Jeff Barnaby one I love is Rhymes for Young Ghouls, which is amazing. She made before Blood Quantum. Yeah, I have that on my watch list. Yeah, that's incredible. That was a really big breakout role, I think, for Deborah Jacobs. And they mm. became close around that film, you know, as as working artistic partners. Um, and then um, I I love Dennis Goulet's film Night Raiders, which I think is streaming now. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've that. heard of that. Yeah, that's sci-fi. And that's that's fantastic. Um okay. And um, uh, Sonia Boileau has a really amazing film called Rustic Oracle, which I think also is streaming maybe on Netflix. I can't remember the platform, but that's that's an interesting film because it's a treatment of the epidemic, current epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, but from a really different perspective than something we see in the historical storytelling in Killers of the Flower Moon, which is so violent. There's so yeah. much screen violence. It's hard to watch. And Rustic Oracle is from the perspective of a younger sister in the family. And it's, you know, the way that the impact is depicted without a lot of on-screen violence and on-screen assault. It's just, it's beautifully done. And the, the child actor is amazing. And anyway, that's great. Ella Maya Tailfeathers is doing a whole bunch of great work, including a film called The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. Mm. Is not available to stream anywhere. That is a title. Like, <laughs> yeah, right? And this is the problem. Like, where's the major platforms for some of this work? So um, uh, she stars in Night Raiders, but her own film, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open, is not streaming right now. Um, and then, you know, Sterling Harjo has a whole bunch of feature films and documentaries. Love and Fury is streaming right now. Um, Andrew Okpeha McLean's feature film On the Ice is fantastic. Taika Waititi's work. No, I think I think you touched on something important there, though, and that's a lot of these films do exist. It's just the access to them, right? It's people's ability to see them. Uh, and I think that's what makes something like Killers of the Flower Moon so novel is that it is this big, epic Hollywood film that's like not even just like a film, but it's coming out peak Oscar season. You got to go right. see this like Martin Scorsese, like all of the stuff attached to it. Um, and so, you know, Joel, the place, the piece that you wrote for Slate obviously is, is you know, discussing your views of the film, not only just, you know, as somebody who loves film, but also as an Osage watching this movie and kind of like taking in a story that, you know, one, I just want to ask, like watching that, I'm sure this is a story that you grew up hearing and, and grew up, you mm -hmm. know, kind of like having a more intimate connection with than, you know, somebody who's just, you know, Oh, this sounds like an interesting, you know, movie to go watch the new Martin Scorsese film. So, you know, coming into it, your expectations were what, you know, because this isn't, you know, again, another big Hollywood film that's not from, you know, not even just not from an indigenous person, but not from an Osage person. Um, and, you know, like these things have a, 
unfortunate history of kind of going left. You know, you kind of watch it and like a lot of people had good things to say about Dance with the Wolves at the time simply because it was like we we never see ourselves. You know what I mean? We never get to see mm-hmm. representation like this. You know, they they did a lot of stuff, you know, bringing in people, you know, to work on the film and you know, there was a lot of hype about that, but the actual movie itself was like like not not necessarily what people wanted so you know when you heard that the story was being made into a big you know martin scorsese film what were your initial impressions yeah i mean that name is titanic you know like uh he's one of the best to ever do it if not the best and he has this massive cultural footprint um both in on the cinema landscape and just culture in general mm-hmm. um so it was it was it was very much a um like oh my god people are actually going to see this people are actually going to you know uh want to experience this cuz it's a, the next Scorsese movie um <clears throat> but with that comes the same trepidation that comes with anything like this which is you know this person that didn't grow up with this story that doesn't have ancestors that lived through this. He's coming in, he's telling it. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a mix of like excitement and that hesitation. Um, back in 2021, I started to do some more research into my ancestors and uh, try to figure out what clan that my family used to be a part of so that I can receive a name. Because in our culture, you're not like a full person until you receive a name. Um, in the film, they talk about it. Um, like when you go into the afterlife, uh, the your Osage name is what's called out. And that's how people know you. That's how you know, you know, that it's it's your name um, as opposed to your, you know, English name. Because these are traditions that predate colonialism by a long time. Yeah. Um, but in that... I needed help from like the cultural center, the museum, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm still working on that with them. Um, But like every time I reached out, they were like, hey, you know, we're working on it. But also like we got to make X amount of moccasins for this scene. We got to do this for that. And so like to see how involved they were, that they could barely do anything else. That gave me a lot of faith in that they were, you know, coming in and working with the tribe and trying to make it a... uh, a faithful representation of our people as opposed to just coming in, shooting a movie, getting out, you know? Right. I want to know, does this feel like, and this question is for both of you, does this feel, uh, you know, uh, okay. So (laughs) my first time, right? Um, So, you know, most cultures aren't, white (laughs) and a lot of white people you know have the opportunity to make films about other cultures it happens all the time right um so when i see a movie full of black people directed by a white person so it goes but when you know when it when it comes with martin scorsese is there like that disappointment that this story gets to be told by this you know, legendary director, because he is a legendary director. And 
with his age and, you know, years at this and the acumen he's acquired over the years, it's kind of a given for him. He can tell any story he wants. He could tell the Michael Jordan story if he wanted to. But is there is there, like you said earlier, a trepidation where it's like, I'm I'm approaching this excited to see this thing told on screen, but also the disappointment. Is that tangible? Is that really there? Um, now that you mention it, uh, Scorsese, a Scorsese version of Ben Affleck's air would be incredible. I would <laughs> yes, love that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I do think that there is, um, because in the past you have these, you know, horrifically characterized, characterized, I guess would be how it's it, depictions of indigenous people. So look, no matter what the name is, there's there's the track record that you can look back on and be like, well, you know, this thing does happen even when people have good intentions. Um, that being said, though, with a name like Scorsese, at least for me, like, there's built in respect there, right? And there's like almost a, okay, well, like, I kind of have to give this a shot because it's Martin Scorsese. And with that, um, in my piece, and with what um, one of the language consultants said on the right carpet, um, with what he said, best case scenario, an Osage filmmaker directed this movie and an Osage is telling our story. However, like Joanna was alluding to earlier, there is such a niche market or there, there has, the studio system has made indigenous films have this niche market, right? Um, people want to see them, but it's hard to see them because of the system that we're in. Um, and so, excuse me, um, with that, it's Scorsese directing it opens it up so much wider um, to, than an indigenous filmmaker, which is not a good thing, um, but it's just kind of a fact of the current Hollywood system. Um, for example, Fancy Dance is a movie directed by Erica Tremblay, who's Seneca Cayuga, and Lily Gladstone's the star of it. And it's just jumping around the festival circuit waiting for someone to pick it up. Um, and so it's, again, would love to have at least an indigenous filmmaker, if not an Osage filmmaker, do it. But like, it's like Lily Gladstone said, nobody's giving an Osage filmmaker $200 million to make a movie right now. And the, the, the reverence that our society has for Scorsese, it does make it much, it, it, it gives a much higher chance for people outside of our own communities to want to go and engage with the story. I, I really agree, Joel, with everything that you just said. And, and I, you know, he has a big platform and it's an important story. And um, from what I understand, you know, Osage Nation folks approached him and said, we want to consult with you on the story. And he listened to them and elements of the story changed. Big parts of the story changed mm -hmm. because of that. Um, I, I also think at, you know, it, what you were saying is it is time for the opportunities and the resources and the mainstream recognition to flow into indigenous hands. Mm. It's time for sovereignty of the camera 
along with political sovereignty mm. for indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So we need to have $200 million indigenous right. people. And I'm very excited for that to happen. And it needs to happen yesterday. So, right. um, you know, both those things are true. And, and I also think that this film, you know, it, it's opening up a conversation. That's great. And Lily Gladstone is so extraordinary in this film, you know, mm. and, and so to for her to have this kind of recognition and screen time and opportunity, and also for all the Osage folks who worked on the set, right, this will open up opportunities down the line. And we don't know what's going to come of that, right? So there might be someone making a film eight years from now who started out on this set. And like, that's exciting. Um, that said, this film feels to me pretty solidly in the tradition of you know, sympathetic and revisionist Westerns, like Dances with Wolves, yes. like Little Big Man before mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. 1970, all the way mm -hmm. back, Broken Arrow by Delmer Daves with Jimmy Stewart, 1950. You, know, you, can, you can track this way back. And those films starred, you know, big star, white male leads, and they centered those white male leads as white characters and their experiences were the focal lens through which everyone entered into and understood that story mm -hmm. and it was control it was a story told from the system of hollywood commercial for-profit cinema and it was controlled by non-native creator you know creative direction and money <laughs> um <laughs> right so i you know and so this this film is is also doing that right with with um DiCaprio's Ernest Burkhart um I think there's a difference um should I keep talking yeah <laughs> no. please 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 I I, I, I one, one of the differences I I think that I know is that and this is a Scorsese difference right Scorsese makes films about perpetrators right Scorsese, Scorsese makes films in which we watch violent perpetrators destroy themselves. And they are explorations of violent white male perpetrators, like a lot of the time, not all his films, but this is this is a hallmark of his work. Yeah, I was hoping you would make this, or someone would make this connection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, so so what, what this film is doing that, let's say Dances with Wolves doesn't do, is that it is really this horrifying, minute representation not just of a white character, but white settler colonial violence. And not just white settler colonial violence, but white settler colonial violence in the arena of intimacy in the marriage, mm. you know, at the level of the home, right? And Oklahoma is an important place to tell that story, not just because this happened, but because in an intermarried society, which Oklahoma really, really is, you know, what happens in the home? How has the settler colonial system been designed such that um, wealth extraction happens in love relationships and marital relationships? And, and you know, like the, the damage of that is unfolding in Ernest Burkhardt's trajectory mm -hmm. as he destroys everything he loves and himself in the service of wealth extraction and that's the system that has trapped him as well as everyone else so in a way it, it centers whiteness it centers his story 
but it depicts this damage of settler colonialism in a way that I haven't seen before. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's it's very intimate, and I mean, you can't tell this story without showing the intimacy and the moral depravity of the people that undertook this. Um, I think it's a really interesting perspective to take uh, because telling it from Molly's perspective obviously would be my preferred way of it being told. However, again, going back to what I said a little bit ago, I think it would take an Osage to do that. Um, I don't know if I would trust a white filmmaker to come in and be like, I'm going to tell the story of one of your people. It's like, mm, I don't oh, I've heard that before. Um, and I think it also is, and I'm sure we'll talk about the ending later. Um, but I, I think that for a predominantly non-indigenous and especially non-Osage audience that is going to watch this movie and has watched this movie, it's a, it's a good entry point into the historical event that happened, the reign of terror. Um, because like in David Grant's book, which is a more journalistic approach, a more whodunit, um, I think it benefits the reader experiencing it for the first time to come at it from this broad scope right. and come at it from the perpetrator so that they can follow it through. Um, and then I think like, a, again, I would love for an Osage to be able to, you know, direct a film about this time. But I think that serving as a companion piece. Um, so like, you know, now that you have the preliminary information, now that you know everything that happened in the historical context that, you know, this upcoming movie would exist in now that you can experience that um specifically in my piece i mentioned uh charles h redcorn's a pipe for february which mm -hmm. is a historical fiction novel that essentially is the reign of terror through the perspective of somebody living through it and i, I would love to see that film be made um scorsese actually said that he would like to see that film be made but i think that from an osage filmmaker or preferably an osage filmmaker yeah, um, would be a, a, a good other side of the coin and a necessary one as well. Um, as far as this film goes with what you were saying, Joanna, about like the, the depiction of like settled colonialism and all that, um, Robert Warrior, who is an Osage scholar, he wrote a piece that is phenomenal and it goes into the parts that the movie didn't cover, namely how federal Indian policy and Indian relations or yeah, uh, American government relations with, you know, quote unquote, Indian people and Indian country um, allowed this to happen and set the stage for all of these things to happen, not only to our tribe, which this is a very specific story to the Osage tribe, but all of these atrocities happen to other tribes as well. Um, so I think while this film did a very good job of what it went for. I think that having that context of, you know, federal Indian policy of the U S government, how this, how this happened, as opposed to just jumping in as it's happening would have been a, a good move. I think you're right. Cause the movie does kind of fizzle out right now, fizzle out. It goes somewhere else before we get to that part or, you know, this, this is the formation of the FBI right here, as chronicled in the book and, like, I would guess the last 45 minutes of this movie. Um, 
And it seems like that's where the real meat of the America part of this story, or like the the macro versus the micro, it seems like that's where we're getting to. And it seems like that's where uh, the movie loses, not just interest, but steam as well. Well, it's interesting because Scorsese is on record saying that's, that's what the studio wanted. The movie, yeah, the, yeah. The 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 movie was originally from the perspective of Tom White, Ernest Burkhart, or sorry, geez, oh, right, Leo yes, DiCaprio yeah. was playing Tom White, Tom coming White. in, saving mm-hmm. the day, yeah. um, like the white people <laughs> always do, as we know from this podcast. Um, <laughs> um, but so it was involvement with the tribe and listening to them that caused the story to flip from this white savior narrative that we've seen. A million times to one that more focuses on the intimacy and the the inner workings of what happened interesting that that was the story leo was interested in well i would say it's it it is interesting too because it, it kind of complicates some of not necessarily it doesn't complicate the criticism at all of the film but i think it, it mm-hmm. complicates a little bit of the the scorsese of it all because like he's he's why that happens right because the studio is saying hey this is fine you know i guess you want to do this but like we we'd really prefer if you made the western you know because that's kind of what we think is going to sell and you know if it's not scorsese if it's not somebody who has that cachet to say this is the movie i want to i'm I'm almost 80 years old you're only going to get like maybe two more of these i mean so like if you want me to make a movie for you this is the movie that i want to make you know, and he's able to push back in a way that very few filmmakers are. And he was able to kind of like he he wrangled in Apple, you know, to be mm-hmm. the you know secondary financier. And so, you know, it, it is kind of like a, you know, catch 22 of like, yeah, you know, like it really would have been great to give an Osage filmmaker 200 million dollars. But like Scorsese gets you 200 million dollars. Exactly. <laughs> so it's yeah. Kind of like, and Ugh. yeah. And Scorsese, this is. I've seen it. A lot of people say this on Twitter, so I'll just echo that. Um, but this very much feels like a prestige project for Apple. Um, oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Scorsese gets you those awards that they want. Exactly. Um, like Lily Gladstone just won the Gotham Award for, I believe that was Unknown Country, though. Uh, but today she won New York uh, Film Critic Circle, whatever, um, Best Actress Award for the film. Oh, um, then the campaign started today. <laughs> oh, well, oh, yeah. It is. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting too because I I do want to circle back to what Joel was, was hinting at, which is the ending of the movie, because yeah, sure. it is. I think Scorsese understood that you know, like I am a white man making this movie, and like, and so this is kind of my concession here at the end, and like Joel said in his piece. He's he's speaking directly to the white audience, you know, in that moment because he's saying, "Hey, this is what we do, right? We take all these years <laughs> of history and we condense it down to not just, you know, what twenty minutes, but like, but entertainment, right? Like, it's a mm-hmm. this is something that you can say, you know, to your your friend the next day at the water cooler. Hey, did you hear about this crazy story with the in Oklahoma where they because even like it's wild to think." And, you know, I'm sure it's it's a similar thing for you, Joel, and for a lot of Osage people. Like, when everybody was like, oh, I didn't hear about, you know, everything that happened in, in Tulsa until I watched Watchmen. And I didn't even think that was real. It was like, mm, yeah, it's actual history. You know, it's a thing that did happen. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, like, I mean, there are significant faults with our 
education system in this country. <laughs> you know, the sky is blue, right? right. <laughs> um, but uh, like particularly when it relate as it relates to indigenous people, there are many states that like don't have a single Native American person in their K through twelve history curriculum, um, and. I think the figure is 87% of state high school history standards make no mention of Native Americans post-1900, um, which ends up, you know, I always felt when I was growing up reading the Native American chapters in the history books, like in like eighth grade, you know, that we were very much like relegated to relics of the Old West mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like put there and like, hey, look, they're not here anymore, which is very convenient for white people. Um, So I get why they do that. Uh, But to not study the, you know, the impact of boarding schools that were still in operation of missing murdered indigenous women of all of these issues is a huge disservice. And it's, it's intentional. It really is. It's it's intentional to gloss over all these things in service of, you know, keeping this imperialistic, nationalistic, you know, rah rah. America's great. Look how great we are. Look mm-hmm. look how good we were to them. Um, approach that this country has long been content to take. Yeah. You know, Joel. Can I just jump in and and yeah, like, of course. Underline what you just said and. And kind of just point out how scary it is then to have a lot of people who grew up in that education system or, you know, earlier, even in earlier iterations of national curriculum education systems and what they know about indigenous peoples comes from Westerns, right? Right. Yeah. That's where the information comes from. And then those people, some of them grow up and go into politics and make policy yeah make policy and so what you know what are they pulling out of their minds or how are are their minds framing approaches broad approaches to making laws that affect people it's coming from popular culture and that's you know that's how powerful that is you know it can have lifelong effects down the line as the people who came up in those systems very true or, or whatever yeah, there's there's a reason that uh, Soviet era Russia, the government then was like, hey, like every movie that's made, we have to sign off on it. We have to produce it um, because they recognized how strong of a propaganda vehicle film is. Um, and like you said, Joanna, when you look at when you get your information from Westerns rather than, you know, document of factual history, you come away with this very skewed view Um Right now, actually, it's you cannot te- in the state of Oklahoma, you cannot teach about the reign of terror. You cannot teach about the Tulsa race massacre. The, the, the systems of education are they're not going to change unless we make them change. And I think that's that's indicative of a larger point, too. Right. When people think about representation and in, in film and media. You know, there's a little bit of a like, you guys are making a, too big of a deal out of this, right? You know, because it's like, hey, you know, it's just a movie. It's just a TV show. It's just whatever. You know, who cares? Yeah. And then, of course, like yeah. Ariel's black and they're like, you can't do that because right. in the Disney right. movie. <laughs> the, the loudest, the loudest ones, yeah. you know, the worst ones scream the loudest. Right. I was I was the manager of an AMC um, when that movie came out. And I just got, it was 
so wonderful watching these like huge families of black people come in and be so excited like all the girls in their aerial dresses and you know just huge family outings to come see that movie it was phenomenal well, representation uh, is well oh, go ahead oh no i was just gonna say like i think that that is why you know when people kind of try to to play it down you know specifically when it comes to historical things right because when people slap that and you've seen it on this podcast before when you slap that based on a true story or like you know a true story you know on on the front little tag of your movie everybody's like well this is the this is the truth you know i don't need to do any research i don't need to nine times out of ten you know when we do the research on the show we're like either it's like this has been skewed a little bit to like none of this shit happened at all like this is all just a lie right more so the latter more so the latter but usually it's like their name was just different everything else is (laughs) like good god but people ingest it and they go around and they say i know history like i know but that's the thing right that's true and that's why we have like literally generations of like you know old white men who straight up like live life as if they're john wayne excavating the west and anybody, that, any brown person that they come in contact with, they might as well get, you know, chopped down, chopped down. And like, you know, and I, I might be joking right now, but like, in, in truth, it, it plays out in the movies we watch. It plays out in how how these movies get made or like what people say yes and no to because they got to play to these people. Right. These movies have to play for everybody. So, you know, whether or not Killers of the Flower Moon's intentions uh, you know, are political. The the image is what what lasts, mm-hmm. and I think Scorsese knows that more than just about every other director in his in his wheelhouse. Because, and, and to go back to the ending, like you said earlier, Jordan, he's telling other white men, other directors who make movies like this, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. This, this, you know, this radio reel at the end, it, it's, it's a joke and it's silly, but this is what we do. We, we placate ourselves with these like funny little bedtime stories about how America got built. But do we tell the real story? No. And the fact is like, he probably knew that he was probably the only one who was going to be able to get this made. You know, there, there's got to be at least a bit of him who knows that on this scale no one is going to be able to tell this story i'm not saying scorsese is like a complete like you know racial altruist and he knows like you know the the ways of the world but i got a good feeling that this guy is savvy enough to know that like no one's going to tell me no because i made such and such and such and such and such right no one's going to tell me no so if i do want to make this this uh racially caustic film that's gonna you know raise some eyebrows and tell you know a you know, not the non fairy tale version of this story might as well be me. So I guess like it's like I'm not saying like straight up thank you, but I am saying like he he knew. I think I think he knows. Well, it's or he's yeah. at least aware I, enough. Yeah, I think you can both want this to have been done by an Osage filmmaker and also appreciate that it was done by Scorsese. I don't That's think why I appreciate are... that uh, that makeup uh, guy's comments. Oh, the, yeah, sorry, yeah. the language, the language, the language yeah. consultant. Uh, yeah. his comments. Yeah, I I don't think those are mutually exclusive, and I think right. it's important to have both simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say. It, well, it's interesting too because even within all that, right? Like just 
I don't know, like earlier this week, last week, they edited De Niro's speech at the Gotham Awards yeah. where he was like, yeah, <laughs> like basically yeah. two days ago, airing a bunch yeah. of stuff out and he had to read it off of his phone because it was like, this isn't the speech I wrote. So, <laughs> you know, what's that stuff about John Wayne and like <laughs> yeah. the stuff I actually want to say. And so yeah. that's why I, I think what, what I, what I really am interested in and, you know, it's, there's there's definitely not a one to one, but in terms of contrasting Reservation Dogs and you know Rutherford Falls and then um, Colors of the Flower Moon, you know we have this movie that's again it's a, it's a period piece, um, and you know I know from from a lot of black filmmaking right like there's there's money to be made in exploitation and pain right like there's money to be made in the slave narrative because it, it's the big epic story of black people in America and it gets told over and over again. And that's kind of what, you know, when you're selling to a studio, you're like, it's going to be this big epic, like, you know, and they're like, yeah, it sounds great. Let's do it. Um, and same thing with indigenous stories. It's like, yeah, it takes place in the past and the Cowboys and Colonel Custer. And like, you know, we do this whole big thing and they're like, yeah, great. Like here's a hundred million dollars. Let's make it. And you're like, you know, I'm an indigenous filmmaker who wants to make a story about, you know, making fry bed with my mother. And they're like, mm, I don't know about that. Like, does it sound like an interesting <laughs> story to us? And, you know, like that, that push and pull. So like now in this moment, are you feeling like, great, we did it, you know, because that's, that's always the big thing, right? It's like the slave movie isn't a problem if there's 50 other movies surrounding it that are giving a larger right. context and perspective, right? If that's not the singular way to be seen. And so, like, the, the period piece involving Native people isn't necessarily a problem if it's not the only predominant image that you get to see and you get to also experience not only just, you know, Indigenous people in the present, but, but all kinds of stories, right? Like, there is pain yeah. and there is trauma, you know, in the past, but there's also the resiliency of a people mm -hmm. and a community. And, you know, like, seeing, even in this movie, like, the ways that, you know, at the beginning, um, you know, when they're they're all together around the pipe and they're like, our lives are going to change now. Right. Like white people are here. We can't really do anything about it in terms of like altering the course. Like we have to learn to live. We have to assimilate. Right. But still at the same time, Osage culture endures to this day. Right. Like, you know, as mm -hmm. much of that assimilation that had to be done, it nothing, they didn't lose their identity, you know, completely in that. And I yeah. think, and that's what the last shot to me is. It's yeah. the people that worked on the film, you know, dancing around the drum. Like we're still here, absolutely not going anywhere. So you know, in terms of of this moment now, like you know, both you know, Joe and Joanna, like where are you hoping not only to see indigenous representation go, but you know, ha has have we finally proven that like this stuff can not only make money. But, you know, we're going to see coming up with the Emmys and with the Oscars, like, can win awards, you know, can be, you know, that kind of thing that Cameron was saying, you know, Apple is chasing prestige, Netflix is chasing prestige, all these other, you know, places are chasing prestige, you know, like, not only not necessarily where do indigenous people will play into that, because that's all a corporate, you know, capitalistic kind of like situation, but speaking more towards like you know, the artistic merits of it, but and even more so just like in the you know, as a as a as a native kid today, going to turn on their TV and see something that accurately represents them, you know, or are they going to continue to kind of see, you know, some of the things we've seen in the past? Have we actually turned a corner this time? I guess is is the big question. 
I think we're in a really interesting place right now um, with indigenous media. Um, there's a modicum of, with this film specifically, there's a modicum of like, we did it in the sense that like our story is, has broken through the barrier of our community and saying that like it, it it's being taken in by people outside the community, which is uh, historically a very hard feat to accomplish. Um, but like with stuff like this movie with Prey, that's been widely regarded as the best Predator movie since the first one. Um, stuff like uh, Rutherford Falls, Reservation Dogs, um, I think it's Dark Winds is another one. Um, I think that there is, there's enough to where the, the narrative of there's no audience for this, why would we make it can finally start to change? Um, because I think it's pretty clear that there is an audience that wants to experience these stories. Um, but I say that we're in a weird spot because it's kind of like a mix it's, it, the tides are changing, I think. Um, but like we had, you know, this big movie, uh, Woman Walks Ahead, come out a few years ago. That's very much, you know, told from the perspective of a white person coming in and, you know, trying to save this tribe. Um, and just opposing that with something like Blood Quantum or something, you know, another film from an indigenous filmmaker that is you know a better representation of culture of um issues of all that kind of stuff i think we're starting to move into that uh into the space where there is going to be more representation and kids said kids now um, unlike me are going to be able to hopefully soon see themselves you know in kids programming um i don't think we're quite there yet um this movie was by all accounts a Herculean task to make, um, but I do think that we're making strides. Yeah, I, I agree with that. As we were talking, I was thinking about um, reservation dogs and you know, at, at the end of Pillars of the Flower Moon, Scorsese takes the mic and also we saw Molly sort of get up and walk away without a word, you know, um, when, her, you know, Urs Burkhardt tells her that sort of final lot. And I, you know, thinking about the the incredible, perfect, beautiful season three finale of Reservation Dogs, where Gladstone has a monologue. And it, you know, she's just she's just such an extraordinary performer as she's laying out the vending machine food and talking about community and and the sort of uh uh opening metaphor of the potato chips comes back with the with the chips and she's laying them out and you know, she had she just has an incredible monologue that she that she's you know she had she has she has a voice at you know at the end of reservation dogs that her character doesn't quite have at the end of killers of the flower moon mm -hmm. and, you know I, I think that's that's a one mark of difference is the sense of of and and her voice in in that monologue she's talking about kinship she's talking about community she's talking about you know the the things that have helped indigenous peoples to survive and thrive um it's also funny um 
you know, so the, the, the spirit who's accompanying her in jail says, say something important. She's like, all right, <laughs> she does. And so, you know, that voice is, you know, that I think is, you know, what I want to see. And, and, um, you know, just thinking about the future, there's so many indigenous peoples, but also indigenous women making films. I think thinking about Amber Midthunder, you mentioned Prey, right? Yeah. Uh, Lily Gladstone, we were talking about her, but Jana Schmeeding in mm. Rutherford Falls, I mean, she's amazing. She's a comic genius. Hilarious. Uh, Beverly Jacobs, right? There's, you know, I, I talked about Elamaya Tailfeather, there's the, all these women, and I, I just want to quote a statistic, and it's, it's an old one now because it's from 2017, but the major film festival for indigenous films globally is the, you know, one of the major ones is Imaginative in Toronto every year. And they, in 2017, 72% um, of everything shown in Imaginative, which includes not just features, but also shorts and VR and things like that, had indigenous women in a position of creative control. That's an amazing it's number. phenomenal, yeah. It's the opposite of the kind of numbers we see for, say, American independent cinema. Yeah. And much less Hollywood, right? For sure. So, you know, I think just look at that capacity and, you know, that's what I want to see kind of expanding into accessible mainstream platforms for people to see. Yeah. And I've... I think the the home video market um, is helping with that. Um, specifically, I got a box set um, from Severn Films called All the Haunts BRs. It's this like 19 film and a documentary um, box set, which is uh, a full core movies. Um, and the documentary itself um, done by, I believe her name's pronounced Kirila Janice. Um, there's a whole section about like how indigenous culture indigenous perspective um have a part in these films um but also in that set was this movie uh it's an australian movie called the dreaming uh from i want to say 1988 have you heard of it joanna no maybe but i haven't seen it okay it's it's not my favorite movie of all time or anything. Um, it definitely has some issues. Um, but the 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 main thing is there's uh, it centers on a white woman, but her father is an archaeologist who is digging up native sites. Um, in the film, since it's from the eighties, they call them the Aboriginal uh, people. Um, but one of these, uh, one of the natives, one of the indigenous Australians, confronts this guy in a grave site. Um, and the, the archaeologist is like, oh, you know, these are relics. They belong in a the museum. They're, you know, this, that, the other. Um, and there was a line that stuck with me. He said, they're not relics. They're alive. They're part of us. And I think that that is like such a powerful sentiment. That mm -hmm. and um, another line was, how would you feel if we ripped up your woman's bones? Um, and I, those are... I think the the again going back to what I was actually talking about, like the home video market is putting out and making so many films more accessible. A uh, clear cut from 1991, a Canadian film uh, with Graham Greene as the lead, phenomenal movie, highly recommend it. Um, that was also in the box set, um, and in a way, it, it's it's interesting to watch those because like no matter if it's Canadian, like clear cut. 
American Indigenous, Australian, we see some in Palestine right now. Indigenous people around the world had the same issues thrust on them by colonialism um, of, you know, I don't know if it's a word or not, relicization. Um, is, if it's not, I'm coining it right now, relicization of Indigenous people and culture and, you know, burial sites, artifacts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of stolen land. Um, there's another one in that box set where this, the it's called Kadaika or Kadaicha, one of those um, where this um, this subdivision was built on um, sacred land. And this daughter eventually gets, the daughter of the real estate developer get, eventually gets targeted and she confronts him. And he's like, well, if you ask them, all the land's sacred. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of how it works, buddy. Um, but like, it's, the more I see, the more I realize that indigenous people around the world, we have these issues that tie us together. We don't mm-hmm. exist in vacuums of, you know, indigenous American, indigenous Mexican, indigenous right. Australian, indigenous Palestinian. We tragically, we all have these shared experiences, shared generational traumas. Um, and yeah, that that's very powerful to me. And I, I hope that the, again, the home video market continues to make these films more accessible absolutely well i guess wrapping up let's go around everybody kind of give give us your parting thoughts parting shots on um you know if you want to again continue to expand on colors of the flower moon or you know anything that's currently happening or just give give thoughts you know i guess you know we all kind of gave some nice thoughts about what we want to see in the future um but you know what 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 do you want people to take away Again, more recommendations is always great, you know, for people to go and check out. Um, whoever whoever wants to start can go ahead and go go around. I, I, I'll start because I want to pick up on something that you said, Joel, because you were talking about uh, Australian Aboriginal film. And, you know, I love Warwick Thornton's work. And, and so mm. I, I think my parting thought is like, everybody should go watch Indigenous films, a lot of it, and TV. Uh, for a long time just go out and watch there's so much out there it's amazing so warwick thornton his first film feature film might have been samson delilah um he also made a film called sweet country and he has a new one that i haven't seen called a new the new boy um and those are amazing films um and taika waititi's work um that you know the film i would have people go see is boy um, which is really beautiful, but also Hunt for the Wilder People is amazing. You know, all his films are amazing, but those are those are ones I'd had to tell people to go see. And then I, I gave that whole list earlier. Um, and you know, the National Film Board of Canada, all their Indigenous films mostly stream for free from that platform, the oh, NFB wow. platform. So th- there's a lot of other places besides the paid streaming platforms too, where you can see this stuff. And yeah. and um, you know, maybe we can throw something up on on your site just to you know give people links and suggestions mm-hmm. oh definitely yeah the stream for free from vimeo and youtube even that you can just watch you know 15 minutes short um and you know all the the seasons of reservation dogs and all of rutherford falls which just tapped indigenous people's genius for comedy um you know it's just it's just it's a beautiful world out there of indigenous film there's so much so my part go watch it no um my parting thought um this does not define the osage nation 
Um, this is a very dark chapter in our history. This is not our entire history. Um, there are plenty, you can go to osageculture.com to read about our culture and our language and all that kind of stuff. And um, there are like videos on Osage foods and how to make them and all this kind of stuff. Like we are still a vibrant, thriving culture. Like there, you couldn't kill us. Um, I also want to say that with this film, we need to be careful when prescribing native or uh, ascribing native representation onto it. Uh, because yes, this is a depiction of native people. However, it's not something where it's just blanket representation. It's very specifically an Osage story. Other tribes have stories similar to it, but that's not what this movie is. This is a this is a this is strictly and specifically a depiction of the Osage Nation and of the Reign of Terror. And so when you know when when asking wondering if this is good representation of indigenous people this isn't the right project to put that onto um there are many others many great ones um that you can do that to instead but just remember that indigenous people as a whole aren't a monolith osage people aren't a monolith i speak for myself i don't speak for the tribe um but i know a lot of people have very complicated thoughts but the, the voices that should be centered, whether it's minor, you know, many other people, Robert Warrior, um, Christopher Cote, etc. Osage voices should be centered with our story um, because, again, this is our history. Uh, Cam, you got anything? <laughs> I, I, I think they I think they said it. But <laughs> uh, again, I will repeat. Definitely go check out as much indigenous film as you can i know that one of lily gladstone's films from last year is also on movie right now no free ads from movie but uh if you got that service it's there (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i i think i would definitely like to to piggyback on everyone's sentiments and not just watching indigenous film but like listening to indigenous people <laughs> yeah. when they speak mm-hmm. and what they're talking about, because I feel like, um, again, so much of what we, we kind of hone in on and center on is, is the trauma and the pain and, you know, all of that stuff. And again, like it's, it is history. It is important. And specifically when you think about how quick people were to cover things up and kind of just be like, mm, you know, we, we don't really need to look too deeply into that. Like that was, the past and now we've moved past that and you know it's like well did you talk to those people who are uh victim to that because i don't know if they've moved past that so easily as everybody right. else has kind of <laughs> moved on with that um but also that i think you know when i think about representation i, I think about the white gaze and the white imagination is so limited you know when it comes to mm-hmm. what is possible and so, you know, I would, I, I love the idea of indigenous science fiction. I love the idea of indigenous horror. I love the idea of, you know, romantic comedies and like all these other things where we're, we're able to see the fullness of people and really, you know, get them as they are, you know, and like, I don't, I don't need to have things explained to me, you know, cause I would, I would love to just see people exist and tell the stories that matter to them. And I, I'll I'll catch up, you know, I'll do my research right, and I'll right. figure it out after the fact. Um, but, you know, like I would love to see more unfiltered stories. Um, yeah. I do have a quick recommendation because it's a book 
uh, that I've very much been looking forward to reading, but I haven't gotten the chance to do it yet. It's Night of the Living Res, um, which is a collection of short stories um, by Morgan Telty. And it's like, it, it exists in the now, uh, but it's also mm-hmm. a, a, a collection that's kind of everything I just just said, right? Like it's all of these things where it's it's taking a range of, you know, there's more dramatic stories, there's more humorous stories, there's kind of some you know supernatural stuff happening there. And, you know, like Joel was alluding to, like, indigenous people contain multitudes. There's so much, you know, that right. we can we can experience and see through that lens. And the more of it, the better. Right. And, you know, right. whether... yeah, we have we have trauma. But to say that our trauma is the most important part of us or that it's all of us is harmful and very reductive. Yeah. Let's see indigenous people laugh and like, yeah, you have joy, and love each you other have... and do all, all the things that humans Run the do. gamut. Right. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Joel, and thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. This has been wonderful. Yes, thank you. Tell guys. everybody, um, you know, Elon is is making it harder by the day. So <laughs> he, he he said fuck off for real. So yeah, I, we might just have to do that. But whatever <laughs> whatever social media people can follow you on, Joanna, I know you have some wonderful books that people can read. Like direct people to where they can find you, you know, online, and uh, if they want to check out more. Uh. So I have a like a faculty website. So you know, University of Oklahoma Film and Media Studies. I'm that's I'm right. on there. Funded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And so like you know, publications on there, but um yeah, I should I should throw up a just recommended viewing list up there. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Um and Joel, where can people find you? Yeah, um you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd if you're a movie buff. Um Let's go. it's all it's all try the buffer. Nice. Um, Cam, where can people find you? Um, I guess in the remaining days of Twitter <laughs> or whatever he wants to call it. Uh, you can still find me there and Instagram and I think TikTok, yeah, at uh, TheBlipster1138. Um, right now, as this comes out, I have a show on Key TV. That's Key, Key Palmer's um, YouTube network. Uh, called the psychological evolution of fuckboys. I wrote on that show, <laughs> and there's some fun to be had there, and some serious talk about mental health amongst black men. So go go check that out too. Thanks. Um, and I'm Jordan Clark. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, jrsosa18. Uh, you can find the show uh, on Twitter, I guess for now at white underscore pod, and you can write to <laughs> us at white people won't save you pod at gmail dot com. And we'll be back soon with more of this caucasity. We'll see you next time. Peace. Fuck Henry Kensington with his dead ass. <laughs> you can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't want to be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. You can't save us. We don't wanna be saved. <laughs>